Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. As always, I'm your host, Rob Walling. Every week on the show, I get on the mic, I often have a guest or sometimes do an entire roundtable of guests. But today I'm flying solo and I do this two, maybe three times a year when I either have trouble finding a guest or I find that I have stuff on my mind that I've been thinking about and developing a framework for and I just want to kind of get it out there in a way that I don't have time to spend four, six, eight hours to write a blog post. And I think it's more substantive and perhaps will reach more people in a, in a deep fashion than posting it to Twitter. So today's episode is going to be me walking through seven different, I, I would almost call them, it's, it's advice, but it's more like these are things that I've learned in my 20 years of entrepreneurship and some things that are going on in the world today that I, I feel like I have commentary on. And when I say in the world, I, I don't mean COVID-19, I mean more in our startup communities. So I'm going to be talking about advice and feedback, a little bit about how to give it, a little bit about taking it. And I'm going to be talking about competition and some specific experiences I've had around it. Talk a little bit about some marketing stuff. And it's not going to be high level, this is how you market. It's just some specific advice and, and mistakes I think anti-patterns in ways that I, I think people have been thinking about marketing as well as managing developers. These all revolve around sometimes just one, but often it's 5, 10, 20 conversations that I've had with colleagues or founders or aspiring founders. And when I start hearing the same thing over and over and I realize that, you know, I'm thinking about this in a different way than perhaps the common, maybe the, the early stage founder or, or just a, someone who hasn't been in our space for a long time, I just like to bring these, these things up and, and kind of talk them through. One thing I wanted to say before I started, it's such a trip. I've probably here once a month, I get an email that says, I have been listening to your podcast for years and I had bought Start Small, Stay Small years ago and I had no idea that you were the same Rob. So every couple months, I'm going to say that I wrote Start Small, Stay Small. If you've read the book, thanks. I appreciate it. But just to clear the air so that you know that I'm one and the same, uh, I wanted to do that. So let's dive in. I have three things that I want to say about advice and feedback. And the first one is something that I think has always happened, but it, it definitely has gotten more and more prevalent in the startup space the more people that are just online and doing social stuff and trying to build personal brands. And I just want to ask that if, if you are a founder who has had some modicum of success, please be really careful about overgeneralizing from one win. I think of it the first time you launch a product and you have some success, suddenly you feel like you know exactly how to launch a product and that your experience applies to every product everywhere for all eternity. And I've seen folks grow a, a, an app to 10K, 30K, 50K a month with no employees. And they typically admit that they got pretty lucky. They found a niche that happened to grow or they rode a wave or they, or maybe they didn't, you know, maybe they really just worked hard and it took them five, six, seven years to get there. But then going out and, and giving advice about, oh, this is how to start a startup and this is how everyone should do it. I, I, th I think it's really dangerous. I have this mental model and I've brought it up on the podcast in the past about the three things that you need to succeed in, let's say, building a startup. One is hard work. Second is luck. And the third is skill. And you might have these in varying degrees. If you have tremendous skill in, in marketing or tremendous skill in building an audience or building a network or tremendous skill at choosing niches and building a great product, you may need less luck and 
I personally always think you should put hard work in because that is the one that you can control the easiest in the short term is to is to work hard. And I don't mean 90-hour weeks, of course. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know that my entire entrepreneurial career, I've worked 40 hours a week or less, except for some very short stints where I did work 60-hour weeks for, say, six weeks at a time, eight weeks at a time to get some hard stuff done. But hard work and focus, I think, is kind of table stakes, in my opinion. Although if you, you know, if you got really lucky, I mean, I do know a founder who happened to be at the right place at the right time and just kind of stumbled into a hobby, became something that was really popular. He got really lucky and sold a company for tens of millions of dollars. And he didn't actually work that hard. And self, you know, admittedly, he's, he never really worked that hard, but he did have skill to build a team and he did get really lucky right place at the right time. So it's totally possible. And then, of course, there are folks who, who don't get lucky at all and they just put in tons of hard work and they build skills and it takes them five or 10 years to get where someone who got lucky, you know, maybe would have gotten to in, in one year. And so those three things, I think, make up the building blocks. But all that said is, look, to build a SaaS app or any type of company to 300 grand, 600 grand, but to build a SaaS app or any company to three, four, five, 600 grand, it, it's hard. You need, typically, you need to put in some hard work. Typically, you probably need a little bit of luck, although maybe not at that scale. I do think that to get to tens of millions or hundreds of millions that you do need, you know, all these things to fall into place. But oftentimes, after your first one, you just don't know. You don't know what made it work. You think you do. But after your second one, your third one, your fourth one, you start to see the patterns. So I've grown seven businesses to at least six figures in revenue. Seven six-figure businesses I've created in the past about 15 years. And actually, some of those weren't six. They were at least six. So there were there are a few that are seven figures. So seven, six, and seven-figure business is probably a better way to put it. And after the first one, I really did think that I knew it all. And, and it's such a natural thing to want to go out and tell everyone about. And then when I did the second one, I realized, nope, the things that I thought made it successful actually were, <laughs> were some of them were right, but about half of them were wrong. And when I go back and I read writings that I did 10 years ago, it's a little painful for me. And I think most folks are not doing this intentionally. I think it's a natural human, kind of a human desire to want to teach. And I think it's a natural human desire to want to, to want to talk about how, you know, you have the right answers. Just consider this. Most people giving advice are doing it to build a personal brand so they can sell you a book or a course, or there are even some investors who do that, right? And a lot of Silicon Valley folks like the venture capitalists would blog in order to get followers. And then people say, oh, they know what they're doing. But really consider a question that I often ask myself when I see kind of a new expert or a new name come on the scene. I typically ask myself, have they done it at least twice? Obviously, there are exceptions. You know, Jeff Bezos has not built two Amazons. The Collison brothers, actually, I think they did have a startup before Stripe that was successful. Like most founders I know who really know their stuff, they have done multiple. I look at a Heaton Shaw, a Jason Cohen, a David Cancel, a Dan Martell, people who have done it two, three, four, five times. And there's a, definitely a learned experience and definitely a, a kind of a different communication, you know, of, of their learnings as they get further along. And that's the, so that's, that's the big question I ask myself. You know, if someone is giving advice, I think, have they done it at least twice or three times so they can start seeing patterns? And I also ask, are they giving advice on something that they really are an expert in? Because again, if you grow an app to 30 grand a month and you're working on it on your own, that is so different than like building a team and building a startup and knowing how to, you know, build a team culture, knowing how to hire people, knowing how to cross a million dollars in ARR, knowing how to cross two, three, four million. It is, it becomes such a different experience. And so as I've watched founders who I've invested in, 
or whom I've worked with or just known through MicroConf in this podcast, each step you're learning a lot. And over time, I think that you really kind of kind of build up that corpus and, and that wisdom, so to speak, that you can share with others. So I'll stop there on the advice and I want to switch to this topic of feedback. And what I mean here is if you're building a product and trying to build something people want, and maybe you do have product market fit and things are growing, there's always going to be someone who wants to give you feedback about your product who doesn't tend to know what they're talking about but thinks they do. It's often hard to tell. And so the thing that I have started doing, because you know, when we were growing Drip, and frankly, probably every business I've ever grown has this, right? Whether it's a microconf, a tiny seed, a Drip, a Hittail, or stuff that I grew before, someone wants to give you feedback. And in the early days, when someone gave me feedback, I thought, oh, they must be an expert. Because see, I don't, I don't give feedback to someone unless I feel like I really know what I'm talking about. Other people don't necessarily have that bar. And so I would get an email when we were running Drip, and we're literally doing millions of dollars in revenue. And someone would say, wow, you really need to change this font color or change this button or this tab in the, in the interface. Just these really small things that are nitpicks and frankly, are not going to change the business. They're not going to change the business. The UX was really good and really solid. And you could, could you find one pixel out of place? Well, of course you could. Does that change the business? Should we be focused on that? And it comes from people who I think are not entrepreneurs. They're not founders. They're not thinking about the business. They're thinking about their particular expertise. And so that's where I've kind of gotten to the point where I really need someone to have some type of credentials before I listen to them. And I don't mean academic credentials, but when someone emails me out of the blue, if it's Heaton Shaw or Ruben Gomez or, or Brennan Dunn or Jordan Gall in the email and say, hey, there's something in your product I think you should fix, I'm going to listen to it because they are a founder and they are product-focused people who know how to build good product. And their feedback is very likely coming from a place of, I'm trying to help you build a better product versus feedback coming from someone I don't know. And when I go to look at them, Either they're not a UX designer at all and they just have an opinion or they, or they are a developer or a designer and they're trying to sell me their services or, you know, I, I just don't know their motivation. And frankly, making changes that random people on the internet suggest about your writing or your product or your podcast or your blog or your conference, it's dangerous. Now, taking it in aggregate, of course, is great. If you hear the same thing from multiple people, especially when you have thousands of customers, when you start hearing the same thing, you have to look for patterns. Yes, you should do that. I'm not saying don't listen to anyone. I'm saying be wary of the individual who feels like they are so confident in their advice, but how do you know if they know anything? And oftentimes they don't. And now this is different than someone coming into your app and saying, hey, I am confused by this. I'm confused by this onboarding. I don't know what to do here. That's bad. You don't want people to be confused. That's different than someone sending you a screencast and saying, you really need to change this. Because it's always like, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. And one person has said this. And since I have 3,000 customers, I'm going to go with my opinion on this one and not chase down a rabbit hole. So that's number two. So that's be wary of product feedback from people without credentials. Third thing is something that Sarah Hatter said. Sarah Hatter runs co-support and she said in a microcom talk once and it resonated with me. It was years ago, probably five, six years ago now. And keeping on the topic of advice and feedback, this is the last piece of this. She said, don't take business advice from people who have crappy personal lives. Let that sink in. A lot of people who give business advice have crappy personal lives. Oftentimes you don't know, but if you do know... It's a really interesting thing to think about how someone treats people. And I've added this to the end. Don't take business advice from people who have crappy personal lives. And my addition is, or who treat people in a way you don't want to treat people. 
And the reason I've added that is because from what I've seen, you can be successful in business and treat people right, or you can be successful in business and treat people like shit. And if you don't want to do the latter, then don't take advice from people who do, because I do think that it's a contributing factor to their success. And if you try to replicate their success with their advice, but you treat people right, you treat them fairly and you're nice to them, I think there's just a disconnect there. And I'm not sure that that advice is going to translate and, and do what you think it's going to do. So let's move on from advice and feedback. Talk about competition. And this is an interesting one. The, again, this is one that has happened to me several times. I think three, maybe more. And it's happened over the course of 15 years. I've been an entrepreneur for 20, although I was a consultant early on and really started building products 2003, 2004 and started, I kind of feel like about 15 to 17 years is really my, my entrepreneurial uh, career. But I've had three people say almost this exact sentence to me over the course of this time. And I want you to hear it. The sentence is, there's plenty of room in the market for all of us. The first time I heard it, it was from someone who was essentially had seen that I was having success in a space and proceeded to copy what I was doing in a way that was really obviously a copy. And as we talked about it, the person said, there's plenty of market for all of us with a smile and a pat on the back because they didn't want to make an enemy. And the first time I was like, oh yeah, no, that's a really good point. And then I watched him replicate pieces of our positioning, a bunch of features, start to try to take our, you know, our customers and just on and on. The second time I heard it, I knew what it was. It was years later. And I knew exactly it was someone trying not to make me mad and trying to be friendly with a competitor, but that they were going to screw me again. They were going to backstab me. But I didn't say anything. The third time I called someone on it and I said, I'm not sure that that's the case. And it really put this person on their kind of on their heels because they didn't expect that. But it's, it's just a fascinating sentiment. I do believe that markets are big and free market is fine, but don't sit there and look me in the eye and tell me that we're buds, that we're friends right before you stab me in the back. So if, if someone ever, if you feel like you have this conversation and someone ever tells you, hey, there's plenty of market for, for both of us, just expect them to start drafting off you if they're not already. And what will be, be interesting is that you'll be able to tell their next three moves by looking at you, the last three moves that you've made. It becomes painfully, painfully obvious with folks like this who are copying you. So I'm not saying don't worry about competition. I do think you should focus on your customers and your audience, but... I do think that competition, especially people like this who try to act like they're not competing with you, but they are effectively ripping off what you're doing, sometimes even the same naming. I do think it's something that it can be upsetting, to be honest. And frankly, when I talk to people who do have competition, who, who is basically copying them, you know, you're the innovator, you spend the time to do it, you prove it out, and then someone just starts copying it piece by piece. It's, it's frustrating on a personal level. There's something about it as a maker, having someone replicate it and typically, and then they claim it's their own, right? And claim they came up with it. And that's, that's the frustrating part. So just be wary of that when you're in a space and, and someone tells you that there's, there's plenty of market for all of us. Next, I want to talk a little bit about marketing. I have two, two thoughts here. I've heard entrepreneurs who launch a business, business growing relatively well, and when I ask them where your leads or where your new customers are coming from, they say word of mouth. And when I dig into that, the real answer is I don't know where they're coming from. So if you don't know, don't say word of mouth. Say you don't know. 
or find out, because I think it's really dangerous not to know where your customers are coming from. I bought a business at one point where the founder told me customers come from word of mouth. I said, why is that? And she said, well, the it keeps going you know, up and to the right. It's going, growing slowly. But in Google, it just says direct traffic. And it turns out it was not word of mouth. There were a number of factors. I mean, I'm going to point to a number of things that would be really hard to track. You can go on podcasts and mention the URL. You can talk from stage. Someone could read about it in a book. They could read about it in a newspaper or a magazine. They could have their referrer being cleared out when they click through. They could be on a different device than where they originally you know, heard about it. It could be a returning visitor. There are just all these things that can lead to you not knowing where they're coming from. And you're never going to be able to attribute 100%. You just you can't do it. But having an idea, and frankly, asking customers is, is, tends to be the best way. Asking where they first heard about you or wh where they heard about you right before they signed up for first touch and last touch attribution. And then, of course, looking in Google Analytics or whatever analytics you use. These are all good approaches. But the right answer to where my customers are coming from is it's almost never word of mouth. Now, word of mouth is a component. Like I, I remember with Drip, word of mouth, as far as we could measure it, was like 15, 20, 25%, depending on how you, how you measure it. Is word of mouth when someone else mentions me on a podcast or is that podcast marketing? You know, it'd be that kind of stuff. But it was, it was somewhere in the, let's say, the teens to the 20s of growth. And that's great. And once you get into the in seven figures of revenue, you build this thing that Jason Lemkin calls a mini brand, where you're not a brand like Coca-Cola or Chevrolet, but you are a small brand in a small niche. And, and the conversation goes from, oh, yeah, marketing automation is, is Infusionsoft and Entreport. And when we started Drip, that's what it was, Infusionsoft, Entreport. And I wanted to be the third. I wanted Drip. I wanted to be Infusionsoft, Entreport, and Drip. And then quickly, Entreport kind of went on its way out, it seemed. And then it was Infusionsoft, Active Campaign, and Drip. And those were the three. And we built this mini brand. And yes, did we have word of mouth? Absolutely. And did we have a mini brand? Absolutely. But I knew that 30% of our new users came from integrations. And I knew that X percent came from organic search traffic. And I knew that X percent came from the podcasts that I was on. You couldn't always pinpoint it. But while you can build good word of mouth, it's often, I think, less than, than you think it is. So just, just be wary. If you don't know where your customers are coming from, that's something you'll see me push Mike Tabor on often. Where are they coming from? How can you find more of them? Because if you don't know where they're coming from and it's just people referring one another, your growth will always be capped. It will be capped at the rate that people will tell one another about them. And this is different than affiliate marketing. I'm not going to go down that, that whole thing. I don't consider that word of mouth because it tends to be a, a very intentional when that works. Second thing about marketing, and then I'll move on to managing developers. But my second thought here is, and this may be obvious to you, but to some folks whom I've talked to, it's not. So I'll just say it and move on. It's not that big of a deal. Transparency in the startup space is mostly about marketing. Like most transparency, I'd say 90%, maybe 95% is to spread the word so that people will talk about them. And that's that's okay. Marketing is fine, but I don't have a problem with marketing. I have a problem with disingenuous marketing, in all honesty. Like when a big name, huge affiliate marketer, blogger, podcaster that we all know always says, yes, I, I have affiliate commissions, but doesn't talk about how most of the products that he promotes, he gets shares in the company. Like he has ownership stake in the company, but you never hear him disclose that. Like that to me is disingenuous and I, I, I don't like that kind of stuff. And that's, I feel that same way about transparency and that I don't know that people realize that Again, I would say 9 out of 10 or, or 19 out of 20 folks doing transparency are doing it to spread the word for marketing or to brag. You know, I think there's a lot of bragging about how much money I made look at me or frankly to get attention for a personal brand so they can sell you something like a course or something. And, you know, again, 
I don't think this is bad on its own. Just think about this the next time you see a company being transparent with all the good things that happened to them. And whether it's, it can be a range of things. I mean, you know, it's whether having all your revenue dashboard public or whether it's publishing all your salaries or your internal thought processes or an income report or whatever. There's a bunch of ways to be transparent. Just, you know, just really think about why is this person doing it? Are they actually doing it to help you or are they doing it more, you know, to draw attention to themselves? As savvy consumers of, of a lot of things in 2020, I do think we need to be aware of who's advertising to us, who's marketing to us, what the messages are and what the what the thoughts are behind it. You know, whether it's Apple putting a billboard up or whether it's a commercial that you're, you know, you got to teach your kids how to interpret commercials and say, wow, the toy isn't actually going to be that fun. It looks fun because the kids on there are making it look fun. But really, once you get it home, it's going to be kind of boring. Same thing with transparency. Like just, just know the thought process behind it and, and be aware of that. And, um, you know, again, I'm not saying no one should be transparent. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. And I'm not saying that marketing is bad. Like to be really clear, just know what's going on behind a lot of the transparency that you see. Last topic for today, it's on managing developers. And this one comes from, I think only two conversations, maybe three that I've had during my career. And it's typically what's always been when I've worked at a larger organization. My advice is don't try to quantify software development. Software development is a craft. Software development is not manufacturing. The difference is building really good software, you need craftspeople. And you can't do this by building an assembly line. You can build software by building an assembly line, right? You can build a car on a manufacturing line, but it's much harder to build an amazingly intricate piece of art or, or a piece of furniture on an assembly line. That takes a craftsperson. There's just a certain element of creativity and craft that you need. And software development can be either. It can be manufacturing, but good software development is craft. And when I've seen manufacturing lines at big companies of 20, 30, 40 developers, and they want to quantify stuff like lines of code written, bugs fixed, that's when you go down this line of A, building crappy software, and B, all your good developers are going to leave. So this really comes up when I'm talking to someone who has never written code or has never, yeah, it actually has always been someone who just wasn't a developer. And they were a manager and they could quantify, oh, at a high level, you know, the support team, it's tickets resolved and time to answer the ticket and happiness of the customer. And they could look at sales and they could say, leads talk to and close time and, and how much money they brought in. And then they would look at development and say, oh, well, I want to do the same thing there. I always told them that doesn't work. There's no number. There's no set of numbers. Now we could look at some OKRs and KPIs, two acronyms that I despise, and hopefully I never have to use them uh, at another company again. But we can put some things down and be like, well, you know, we're shipping features. What's our velocity? I mean, there are ways to quantify this. There, agile development and sprints and all this stuff. Yes, it's cool. It's good. And we can have estimates and try to hit them. Yes, I believe all that. But to purely try to quantify things, like I've seen people try to do, it doesn't work in the way that you want it to. And it, and it backfires and you're going to lose your best developers. If you want to build a plus or a software, you need really good developers and you need to treat it like a craft. And if you want to build C minus or D plus software, then that's fine. Treat it like manufacturing. I compare it to using a pretty elegant tool for all its foibles. Slack is pretty easy to get onboarded and use. And that's a pretty elegant user experience. Frankly, Uber Eats user experience is really nice. And, and I think someone really smart there is heading that up versus an app like Salesforce, every time I tried to use it, I just wanted to gouge my own eyes out. It really is this thought of like, how can we not treat every department as if we're an MBA 
that we got a degree and we think we can middle manage all the departments because software development is not the same as customer support. Those are my thoughts for today. You, you might think of them as like, if I was blogging, that would have been the last six months of blog posts. And instead of kind of condense them into audio format, hopefully you were able to get some nuggets of wisdom out of these thoughts that I've been having over the past several months. I'll be back next Tuesday morning with another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. As always, if you have thoughts or feedback, you can head to startupsfortherestofus.com, post a comment on each episode. I read all the comments, or you can tweet me at Rob Walling. Thank you for listening this week. I'll see you next time.